0: You are entering the news vault from KCBS radio. Flames and the smoke. I have a tape recorder in my hand.
1: Nobody would think of doing that. The newsmen were blocking the door. It worked for a couple of
0: seconds. Bringing the sounds of history back to life. Here is your host, Stan Bunger. And this time we look at a couple of KCBS institutions, the program In Depth. And the man, Darcy David. We'll blend them together in a moment. In-Depth, of course, goes back for many, many years. A Sunday morning mainstay on KCBS. And over the years, within the half-hour format of the program, there have been a number of iterations. For many years, a single host or a pair of hosts conducted the interviews each week. For many years, it was a rotating staff responsibility. Each member of the staff would be given a date and told, when your time comes up, it's up to you to find someone to interview to produce the program and have it ready for air on Sunday morning. And it was during one of those phases that Narsi David conducted the interview you'll hear in a few moments. That was in 1995. Now, as for Narsi. What do you say about a guy who's been such a ubiquitous part of the Bay Area broadcast and food scene for so many years? Narsi first came to the Bay Area to go to college. He wasn't immediately into the restaurant business, but got there after starting as the manager of a restaurant in Berkeley, became a partner in that, eventually began a catering business in the 70s, and that had him bump into a guy named Bill Graham, the rock music impresario for whom Narcy catered events for all sorts of things. He catered the Rolling Stones. He catered the band's last waltz concert at Winterland. He was involved in all sorts of things. And, of course, if the band needed the brown M&Ms in or out of the bowl, Narcy was responsible for that as the caterer. He opened Narcy's Restaurant in Kensington in the East Bay, ran that for a number of years, had Narcy's Market for a while, and, of course, was a key part, ...of radio programming on KCBS for many, many years. The KCBS Kitchen program, Narsi co-hosted evening versions of it... ...and continues as the food and wine editor of the radio station to this day. This in-depth broadcast with Narsi as the interviewer... ...has one of the more remarkable guests we ever had, and that was Julia Child. One of the unrestrained comments she had when Narsi asked the question was... "...that's feeding, not eating." She was very, very serious about the way Americans ought to approach food and eating, and she pulled no punches in talking to Narcy on this episode from 1995. Is butter making a comeback in America?
1: I hope so. I read an article in the New York Times saying it was, but I think there are an awful lot of people that are still mortally afraid of butter and cream.
0: KCBS In Depth, a spontaneous and unrehearsed interview with one of the people making news.
2: Our guest today on KCBS In Depth is Julia Child, the woman who taught America to cook French, the woman who taught Americans to experiment in the kitchen, but mainly to loosen up and enjoy their kitchens. I'm Narcy David, and we're delighted to have you with us, Julia.
1: Well, I'd love to be with you again, Marcy.
2: It's a little bit of an intriguing fact that many people don't know, and that is that in World War II, you met Paul Child in Ceylon. What were you doing in Ceylon at that point?
1: Well, I was in the OSS. I wasn't a spy. I was just a file (laughs) clerk. OSS,
2: (laughs) the Office of Strategic Services. Now, that is the precursor to some of the important spy agencies, uh, isn't it? To
1: the CIA. Uh Aha. But us women were just there to be office help, and they said if we tried any funny business, we'd be on the next boat home. <laughs> but it was fascinating And to that's be there.
2: where your love for French food started. You started out with a well, class? Was,
1: uh, well, I, we had single-lease food because we were in Salon, and then we moved up to China. And my introduction to good food was with Chinese food, particularly the northern, the Peking style. It was just delicious.
2: And that remains one of your favorite styles of cooking even today.
1: Well, it's awfully hard to find a really good Chinese restaurant. And I think the Chinese, they like to give you what they think. They know what you want. You can say whatever you want. But you're going to get what they know you like. So you have to go with a real Chinese person to get the right thing. Now, in
2: 1948, after the war, you and Paul moved back to Europe and to Paris this time. Mm -hmm. You got a chance to study at the Cordon Bleu, and uh, that launched a whole new cooking school of your own.
1: And at that time, we were there at the end of 1948, 1949. That that was the good old-fashioned classical cuisine, and it was delicious. That's what
2: started me off, really. And by 19, what was it, 50 or 51?
1: Yeah, we started our little cooking school called Le Col de Trois Gourmands, or the school of the three hearty eaters.
2: (laughs) Hearty eaters, indeed. That also started out our book. And that was the very first book, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, that you mm-hmm. did with Simone Beck, Louisette Berthold, mm-hmm. and, of course, Julia Child. Now, that book has to be a seminal point in in getting Americans interested in French cooking for my money because it removed mm-hmm. so much of the mystery and said, look, folks, here's how you can do it. Well, I think that was it. Well, I, had, see, I hadn't I had started in cooking till after we were married. My mother... Didn't cook
1: anything at all because in those days <clears throat> everybody had cooks, and <clears throat> so I didn't know how to cook anything. And then when I got over to France, I just couldn't get over that food, and I plunged right in. And, and it then was with, and it
2: was wonderful. It was the old, real old classical cuisine, and, and it that was sort so of has good. remained as much of the underpinnings of your cooking you you certainly oh, never got frightened away from things like butter and cream when they started worrying about cholesterol
1: well we didn't have any of that talk when i was when i was there you ate what you wanted and it was lovely and then and everyone had a wonderful time until them nutritionists got in and when was that in about the 80s or something like that <laughs> and now there's so many people that are really terrified of
2: food and i think that if you're afraid of food, you're not going to digest well. Oh, I'm sure there's a lot to be said for that. It's Mm -hmm. not just the psychology, but the psychology affects the physiology. Oh, exactly. It just suddenly doesn't work.
1: And we certainly all know what we should eat now, because there's been so much talk about it. And I think the important thing is, as we say in the American Institute of Wine and Food, moderation, small helpings, and a great variety of things, as well as Watching your weight and exercising and
2: having a good time. Well, you've summarized everything we need to do in those two sentences, but yes. applying them, of course, sometimes gets a little tougher. Now, in 19. 19- well, that's
1: because a lot of people don't take an adult point of view about cooking. They act like babies or scaredy cats, and they're
2: not. All the information is there, all the food is there. But just applying those simple rules, you're right. That's exactly what it takes. Yes, perfectly easy. Yes. In 1962, you made the pilot for The French Chef on television. Mm -hmm. And uh, it sounds a little corny to say the rest is history, but that's really the case. You really created an entire industry of cooking on television and, of course, ultimately on radio as well.
1: Well, before I came along, we did have D'Aoni Lucas, who was a wonderful technician, a wonderful cook. And then she was off the air, and when I came on, there wasn't, wasn't anything. I had, the, had it to myself until the Galloping Gourmet arrived. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I met him in San Antonio just the other week. He's a perfectly charming man. But he had, because he has a wife who's had serious health problems, he has to go to the less than 10% fat.
2: Well, he has adjusted his cooking pretty dramatically. His Well, new he, books... he, had,
1: he had to. Right. But what I think I like his point of view. If you're going to take flavor out, you've got to put something else in. You can't simply
2: remove fat without compensating somehow. No, you can't. Nobody's going to eat it. Any helpful suggestions or advice for the person that's looking to do that to some of their old favorite recipes? Well, I think think very seriously about the reduction of of sauces,
1: say, and and herbs and things like that. For instance, we we did a, a. a demonstration together that was filmed for PBS uh, Cooking in Concert, and we did three dishes that were the same. We did a a Mediterranean fish soup, and he did his version of a fat-free red garlic sauce, and I did mine, sort of the usual one, and then we did a duck dish. He did his, and I did mine. And the interesting thing in the duck dish was that that had... Really no fat in it. He roasted the duck breast, sliced it very thin, had a very nice mixture of vegetables, and then he made a little you know a, a little sauce with a chicken stock and cornstarch, which just gave a little thickening, and tossed it with that, so
2: it gave the illusion of having having a sauce on it. Well, that corn it was delicious. suddenly becomes very important because in creating that, that viscosity, that smooth mm-hmm. texture, it really goes a little bit of a distance towards helping to overcome the uh, yes. loss of the fat. Or,
1: or the dryness of a fat-free salad. Because I, th- I think you really have to know what you're doing, and he really does, because he's a fine cook.
2: I anyway. Like, I like to take stocks like that chicken stock you're talking about and boil them down and reduce them, of course, with mm-hmm. no salt, because... If you start with a canned stock that has salt in it, by the time you reduce it by half, it gets a little bit overpowering.
1: But then you can always grate a potato into it, and that will absorb some of
2: the salt, and then strain it out. All of these uh, handy-dandy little uh, tricks of the trade. Uh, Tell me, as you see the trends developing, what about what's really happening are we developing regional cuisines in america we talk about california cuisine southwest cuisine hawaiian island cuisine mm-hmm. these are names that that we had never heard of just a few mm-hmm. years ago
1: well I, th- I think you're always having the question what is american cuisine well american cuisine is a bunch of regional cuisines isn't it i was talking to roberto donna in um, in Washington last night, and he was saying that it's like Italian. You can't say Italian cuisine because Bologna is different than Venetian and different than Piedmontese and so forth.
2: And the Sicilians will tell you that they're from a whole separate country.
1: And, well, they're not. That, well, of course, it is a group of city states anyway. Sure.
2: But what about the issue of which of these things that we read about? such as Southwest cuisine, is this really developing a trend that we can say is a regional style from the Southwest, or how much of this is just a fashionable, trendy kind of thing?
1: I think the media brings up a lot because they have to have something to talk about. (laughs) But on on the whole, I think, uh, certainly in the Southwest, there's an awful lot of use of chilies, and much more so than, say, New England. New England, though everyone's putting... Chili's into everything now, which I deplore, but I, th-
2: I think it's, it does it's seem there, like... there
1: are trendinesses which seem to spread all across the country.
2: So, how do you differentiate between the trendiness and something that is truly developing a new style? Is there anything that you see evolving that is developing a new style of cooking?
1: It's hard, I think it's hard to tell. Because I think in this, this new television series we have, which we have 26 different chefs from all over the country, each one has his, his or her own style, and but, but a lot of things go through the whole fabric of what's going on today, For instance, and various things are trendy, like tamarind paste. I never even heard of tamarind <laughs> paste, I don't think, until we started this. Well, we, of course, we have Matter Jaffrey using it. And, And Jean-Georges von Gerichten, who had such an an Asian background, as well as classical French. And then Mark Militello, down in South Florida, makes his own tamarind, because they have tamarind trees, which are supposed to be beautiful trees. I've never seen Uh one.
2: Our guest today on KCBS In-Depth is Julia Child. Julia, tamarind... Intrigues me because of that wonderful sour quality. You find it certainly in, in Central and South America, and I must say that until recently, the only ingredient listing I ever saw with tamarind on it was uh, something like um, Worcestershire sauce, which relied on it for that okay. tartness. But, but it's not,
1: a lot, it's delicious, I think, in particular if you make your own the way Mark Bilotello does. Have you ever seen that it looks like a sort of a big bean about the size of a fava bean and then when it's ripe it's a khaki-coloured crackly skin with a sticky brown paste in it and buried in the paste with these seeds that look like black beans
2: yeah we luckily have that around the bay area and we're able to buy the whole beans it's fairly Mm -hmm. commonly available in latin markets Mm -hmm. and in some of the large produce uh, specialty stores health
1: health food store but it's it's really nicer if you make your own and then i think put it in small quantities and
2: freeze it so that you can just bring it out as you would a a Mm -hmm. glaze or a stock to Mm -hmm. reinforce and flavor something Mm -hmm. Now, the show that you made a reference to in Julia's Kitchen with Master Chefs has 26 different chefs from around the country. Mm -hmm. I'm intrigued with the way you've selected them because although they're not all restaurant owners, most of them have restaurants, some have written cookbooks, and and they really seem to be the people that have some of the most creative ideas Mm -hmm. in presenting their cuisine. Mm, that's, That's what we
1: wanted. We wanted to show
2: what's going on in contemporary
1: restaurants and with talented cooks.
2: Now, this is just being launched around the country on PBS, mm-hmm. and there's a companion book that has all of the recipes mm-hmm. that are used in the series. But
1: the, the book is written expressly for serious home cooks, as we say. It ain't for fluffies. It's for people <laughs> who really love the mechanics of cooking, but it's written for the home cook, so all of it can be done. And some of the recipes say like Charlie Trotter, are very elaborate but you don't have to add all of the things in or you can use use some of the garnishes that might be useful for something else like sauces and special chili things and so forth
2: so we certainly have uh, lots of good uh, good connections With the Bay Area, Jim Dodge, who was the pastry chef at the Stanford Court, of course, has gone off to the East Coast now. But he Uh,
1: travels all around, and he's done a marvelous chocolate cake. It's a moist, very chocolatey chocolate buttermilk cake with a wonderful, very chocolatey Frosting and
2: filling. Uh huh. You have Reed Heron from uh, Restaurant Lulu. Oh, I in loved San him. He was wonderful. I think yes. And uh, Carol Field, who wrote those wonderful books about uh, Italian breads. In fact, mm. I think she really taught America how to bake Italian I breads.
1: She, and she's done breadsticks. I thought breadsticks would be very difficult, but they're very easy to make <laughs> and
2: a great deal of fun. A lot of good times with that Julian Serrano from Massa. So oh, San Francisco. Oh, he's, he's marvelous. Yes. San Francisco got some uh, superb. Uh, 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 endorsements in this thing.
1: Well, it always does, because you've got so many really fine chefs and restaurants here.
2: It is exciting. I've often felt that uh, the California wine industry has really contributed a lot to the importance of the Bay Area, oh. the fact that we're surrounded by the most important wine growing region in the country, mm-hmm. and fine wine and fine food come together so nicely and so perfectly. And I'm, I'm, I was
1: very much impressed the last time we were here, last fall, I think. And the the Napa Valley has really become a food mecca, hasn't it?
2: Oh my! There are more That's restaurants. It's you know. it is incredible. It's uh, it just is sprouting sprouting new restaurants yeah, all which the time. Is wonderful. It really is uh, pleasing. Now, as as I look at uh, at what's happening with wine, I must say. It's impressive that when I looked back to your very first book, "Mastering the Art of Mm -hmm. French Cooking," you were making wine recommendations with your dishes, and that's over thirty years ago. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. uh, trendsetters somehow are way ahead of their time. Well, I
1: I think it was was terribly important then because wine people weren't drinking as much wine as they do now.
2: Well, they were barely getting started. The industry was was sort of in its infancy, having recovered from. From prohibition and Mm -hmm. world war two it was really just starting up again and comments like yours and the way you were able to bring it into the home and make it a regular part of every meal I think contributed very beautifully to that
1: we always showed wine too because we were on just on a shoestring at the beginning of our shows you mean years ago and there was very little budget so we would make we used gravy master to make it look like red wine, because you couldn't <laughs> tell if it was black and white. And once I said, and with this server superb, well-aged, Gravi Master, <laughs> nobody ever
2: noticed that. Well, wasn't that the days that, on the uh, flip side of the coin, the, uh, the coffee advertisements on television uh, always put red wine in the cup because it glistened and reflected more effectively? Well, that
1: I didn't know. <laughs>
2: that, fortunately, <laughs> that's, that's all changed. I you know, think that... Uh, truth in advertising thing mm-hmm. uh, has gotten into that you made a mention of the american institute of wine and food and and it certainly seems amazing to me the uh, the degree to which you travel it wasn't that long ago that the American Institute of Wine and Food was celebrating your 80th birthday and parties all over the country. I know. We
1: had something like 30,
2: more than 30 birthdays. And it seems like you're at every one of those things. It, it took well, me I a week. was
1: almost at all of them. It, it took well, me a week let's to let's track you how down. Well, see long we've, the AIWF has been going now for 12 years and we now have almost 10,000 members and 40, more than 40 chapters. It's really alive and well and doing very well. Well, tell
2: us a little bit about the AIWF. Well, it was established, I think it was in
1: 1982 um, with Robert Mondavi and me and Dick Graff of Shalom Vineyards. And we had always felt that, that that the study of wine should be really an academic part of the, of gastronomy should be part of the academic life. And it hasn't become so yet but we felt that it it was such an important part of our life and that we should have an organization that was open to everybody who were interested in The knowledge of wine and the improvement of its quality and so forth, and so that's what the AIWF is about,
2: really. And now you put on conferences that are all over uh, the country. Yeah.
1: Well, we have a big conference coming up in Boston in September, but it's an organization that depends on its chapters. I think, think you have a very active one here. In San Francisco, which you belong to, don't you?
2: Well, I certainly participated a lot uh, yeah. mm-hmm. in, in from the early days of of creating that.
1: Well, so I think people are very anxious to know how to taste wine and what you're supposed to look for and really learn a little about wine. And again, like with French cooking, to take the fear out of it because. In the old days, everyone was so snobby
2: about wine and so forth. Well, the degree to which they're they're able to, to get away from the snobbiness mm-hmm. in, in the wine part of it, but at the same time to become so serious in the gastronomical part of it. Now, you started mm-hmm. with a major collection of cookbooks and books on food mm-hmm. and wine. Is that beginning...
1: No, that, that, that's a really that's about the largest collection in the country. And the major part of it is that Harvard Radcliffe at the Schlesinger Library, and then the rest of it I think is concerned with the Pacific Rim is at the University of California at San Diego. But what we eventually are are looking to do is really to to be the authority on questions of wine and food, because you have all these ridiculous claims that, that come up that the lead capping around the wine bottle is dangerous, and Evidently, it's has no more effect than a nice serving of broccoli, if that <laughs> much. But I don't, it's a shame, I think, the way these r- ridiculous claims come up, and then they ban all of that. And then they find uh, six months later that it was all false, like the Alar Apple business. Well, and that- then this group called the center for science and the public health who says that popcorn is a heart attack in a bag or something stupid like that
2: (laughs) our guest today on kcbs in-depth is julia child and the center for science and the public interest has just taken center stage here i guess the the thing that that concerns a lot of us about some of those reports is that although they point up some of the evils and it is true that if you have that bag of popcorn with a massive serving of, uh, of some butter substitute like coconut oil on it, you probably do get ten times the normal dose that you should have. But the problem is they make it sound like popcorn is bad, and popcorn without the fat is wonderful for you.
1: And then they also, they were they were talking about chicken and tuna sandwiches, that that was the heart of hack on a piece of bread but who's going to make a sandwich that's like that with a filling that's about two inches thick you can't even get it into your mouth then they recommend instead that you take a turkey sandwich with dry bread and a little mustard on it and that terrible supermarket slimy turkey breast it's bad enough anyway it was just between stale bread and a bit of mustard that's not dining it's feeding and we're not that's not what we like to do
2: we're not reduced to that well you know no. i think your earlier comment about moderation is what it all is going to have to that come back and is. focus on you can't have food without any fat and it's kinda silly as you say to suddenly take that uh, turkey breast with uh... plain bread and a little bit of mustard on it there are too many other things you can do with it to make it more desirable well i have a, have a nice Low-fat story. Yes,
1: this is my horror story of the week. That um, a radio commentator was talking to one of these no-fat people, who he had a very sou- a sallow look to him, and he's very, very thin. It was just as though his skin was just stretched over bones, and he didn't he ate practically no fat at all. And the terrible thing about him, he was a miserable-looking fellow. He was covered with dandruff. (laughs) But isn't that nice to think of?
2: (laughs) What an image. My goodness.
1: Well, and that was because of
2: the way he was gating. And he he didn't live very long, and no wonder. It really, truly requires all kinds of things. We have to have fat in our diet, and we have to have carbohydrate, and we have to have... All of these different elements, but keeping them in moderation and keeping but them then sensible. also you
1: have to have a little bit of everything, because who knows what hidden magical qualities there are in... Various things like a carrot or a piece of salami that you really need in your diet. So you're well, a bit tend, of everything.
2: We tend to overreact, I think. I remember when they first discovered some healthful benefits of omega-3 fatty acids and the fact that whatever they, they are. Were, yeah. Well, there's a lot of them in salmon, and there was a sudden rush on salmon, and people were eating salmon seven times a week because well, they that's thought it very was very bad. And of course, there's nothing that is good to the extreme.
1: There's that woman who was eating tuna fish twice a day and then she finally got some mercury poisoning because she was just... I mean people are nutty I think in many instances. We don't
2: want to accept the reality of a little bit of everything. We don't Mm -hmm. want to accept the reality as you pointed out The rules are there and they're perfectly clear for all of us. We don't need any further advice if we can just apply the good sense that we have. Small
1: helpings, I think, particularly for us Americans who love big helpings like that beautiful chocolate cake of Jim Dodge's, a small helping of that would be much better, say, than
2: a bowl full of jello. Which is simply not going to give you the satisfaction that you're going to get from that small piece of cake no so use the butter and use the eggs and use the cream and use all of these ingredients but just temper the volume of it that you consume and then I
1: think also you have to have room to binge but if you're going to really binge you've got to plan for it and you're going to be be very careful the day before and the day after even more than that if you've really binged because you don't have to have this exact amount of food or fat or this or that every day that you should look at your diet over three or four days or a week and just take an adult point of view about it and have fun.
2: Now tell us what finally you see coming up for tomorrow and uh, the week after and the year after. What is Julia Child planning to do next?
1: Well we are next our next series is going to be on baking. We're going to have 26 bakers and we'll probably get about 52 shows out of them. Baking. And that's going to be baking everything from flatbreads to croissants to baguettes to cakes and everything like that. Anything that you can say you have baked that has something like flour
2: in it uh-huh. will be in our show. So that's it's not just be limited to breads or oh, just pastries. No. It includes everything.
1: Yeah, and then we can be very open ended about it and put anything we like but the main thing is to we want to get a representative group of chefs from all over the country or or cooks and they have to be able to able to put it across, if you have somebody that is a silent baker, that wouldn't make a very good television show. Would you?
2: <laughs> you have to be careful how you select these uh, characters. Yeah. Julia, what about the direction that uh, American cuisine is taking? What, what trends do you see evolving into the future?
1: I don't really know about trends but I know when I'm, you're always reading that nobody's cooking anymore and everyone is too busy to cook yet all the people I've talked to are running cooks cooking schools including here in San Francisco they say that their attendance is up in other words people are cooking at home and they're also buying a lot of cookbooks and I think people are also realizing that that if they have a family they must have a nice Nice meals together, particularly one once a day so that all the families around. And and even though the parents are not learning how to cook, I mean, they haven't learned how to cook, a lot of them are going to taking classes. Then all of these television cooking shows, there's, you have a show on just about every style of cooking you like. It's terribly important for young people to know what good food is to taste like, that there is life beyond pizza.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it certainly has been a long route from uh, starting out in Pasadena, California, to uh, the Office of Strategic Services and Paris, and uh, back to uh, the United States to become America's uh, not only most famous, but most beloved uh, chef. Television, radio, cookbooks... Uh, writing of all sorts. Uh, Julia, we're just delighted uh, that you could be with us. I'd like to uh, to thank you for your visit. Our guest on KCBS In-Depth today has been Julia Child. I'm Narcy David, KCBS All News 74.
0: You have been listening to KCBS In-Depth, a news discussion series broadcast every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and 8.30 p.m. KCBS In-Depth is produced by Cheryl Rains and Laura Tresiokas. Remember to follow the News Vault from KCBS Radio on social media. On Facebook, we're at News Vault Podcast. On Twitter, find us at News Vault SF. On Instagram, we're at News Vault. Until our next episode, you are leaving the News Vault from KCBS Radio.